Okay, thanks very much. Ed, can everyone hear me okay? Pretty good. Um, it's a pleasure to, uh, to be here. And it's a pleasure to be here. How's that? We do. Do you really, really? Should we switch to that one? It's fine. It's the it's the Britney Spears one. I was a little intimidated by it. How's this? Is this okay? All right. So it is a pleasure to be here today. Um, always fun to come to a place uh, where water's so uh, important. Um, and I have to say, I, I was surprised, but I probably shouldn't have been surprised when I saw the commercials for combines on TV. And that was cool. And, um, you know, what's that sporting goods place called the Moose's Tooth? You don't get to see that everywhere you go. And I, I, haven't, I haven't seen that much of uh, sort of interesting local flavor, so it's, so it's great. Um, uh, I want to talk to you today about the work that I'm doing with the Grace Mission. It's work that we've been doing from before the mission was launched. Um, back, it was launched in 2002. We started doing this work, pre-launch work, back in about, oh, 1995, 1996, trying to anticipate some of the results that, that we would get. Uh, we've gotten what I think are some great results, some very uh, interesting surprises, and I think some insights um, into what the water landscape looks like and uh, even how the water cycle is working in terms of quantifying these things and, and uh, understanding how water moved back and forth from the ocean to the land and back from the, from the land back to the ocean. Uh, Ed mentioned that uh, this is one of the Birdsall Dreis lectures and this is number 30. I'm giving 50 uh, over the course of a year. Actually, it's more like over the course of about uh, 15 months. I started in November of 2011 and I'll finish up at the end of January. Um, so I think it's amazing that I'm still standing, but uh, it's, a, it's a rather grueling schedule. Um, but been very exciting. This is actually an old map. I was putting pins on all these places here in this Google map, but uh, it's been uh, significantly filled out. Um, so I need to thank the, the, um, the Geological Society of America, the Hydrogeology Division, and also uh, the UC Irvine, uh, Office of Research and School of Physical Sciences who have provided some additional travel support and of course uh, uh, UNL and, and Ed and also for Lori who really demonstrated, uh, uh, Lori Benson who really demonstrated considerable uh, persistence and patience in um, getting me, you know, tracking me down and getting me to agree to a date and all that and so I, I really, really appreciate it. And so uh, along the way I've been um, uh, keeping a blog going. It's at blog.eccm.org. Um, and on this site, you can find the text of the talk. You can find some slides and uh, some other um, uh, opinion pieces that I've been writing. Uh, this is from today's paper. So it's always great to come to a place, again, where uh, water is such, uh, such an important issue. And in fact, as it was today, uh, front, front page news. Uh, okay, so I want to talk about um, the characterization of water cycle change. What I'm thinking about, what are the things that I'm going to talk about? We hear a lot about it. Is the water cycle accelerating? Is it getting stronger? What does that mean? So I'll talk about that. Um, and specifically show you some results from the GRACE mission. GRACE stands for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. It's a NASA mission. 
um, that uh, makes uh, very detailed measurements of Earth's gravity field and how that gravity field changes over time, uh, thereby giving us uh, direct insights into the water mass changes that would be responsible for the gravity changes that are, that are measured. Um, to get a handle on, um, on what's actually happening out there, I think it's instructive to think about uh, what we might expect to see with a changing water cycle. Are we seeing more precipitation? Are we seeing more floods? And all these things that people talk about and that the models predict. So I want to talk about what we might expect to see versus what we are seeing. Um, and um, then do a little bit of arm waving about uh, how the water cycle will behave in the future. Totally hypothetical, haven't tested it at all. It's just a completely heuristic argument, but I want to share it with you because I think it's important. And then finally, what, what should we be doing about it? And by this, I really mean, what should we be doing about it as faculty, as students? And really, I'm getting towards communication and communicating our results, our important results. You know, this is a, a group of people that does a, a lot of important work with respect to water availability, with respect to food production. And uh, your congressmen, your environmental decision makers, uh, they need, to know, they need to know about it. And maybe the only way they're going to find out about it is if you communicate it to them directly. So we'll talk uh, a, little bit about, uh, a little bit about that. So let's start off by talking about the GRACE mission and this characterization of water cycle change. I've been saying this for a very long time to, to my students. One of the most palpable impacts of global change may ultimately be changes to the water cycle and changes to fresh water availability. For example, as climate warms, we can expect in a warmer atmosphere, we can hold more moisture, more evaporation, and therefore more precipitation, and on land, more runoff. So bigger exchanges or more cycling of water in the water cycle. Uh, another thing that we hear a lot about, and it kind of goes in hand if we're going to have more precipitation and maybe more evaporation, that well, stands to reason that we'll probably be seeing more uh, uh, flooding and drought. We even heard the, the president mention it in, um, in um, his, his speech the other night at the, at the convention. So an increase in the magnitude and frequency of the hydrologic extremes of flooding and drought, or more extreme extremes. Okay? So I'll talk about what, what we're seeing there. And then an, uh, a third thing um, is that we uh, may expect to see a redistribution of precipitation from hot from the mid-latitudes to the high latitudes and to the low latitudes, so the so-called mid-latitude drying. Okay, so we'll see the, the wet areas getting wetter and the dry areas getting drier. So these three things together, more water cycling in the water cycle, the more extreme extremes, and the wet areas getting wetter, dry areas getting drier, those are the things that I am referring to when I'm talking about water cycle intensification or water cycle acceleration or water cycle change. These are the things that I'm that I'm focusing on. Um, and so I'll give, uh, uh, so I'll talk a little bit about the GRACE mission, show some of the basic results from that, but then focus on these sort of three uh, examples of some of the work that we've done to kind of get at these questions. Are we seeing these, uh, are we seeing these things happening already? Are we seeing this redistribution um, of precipitation? Are we seeing more runoff? So we'll talk about those in just a, a few slides. But first, uh, let me talk about the GRACE mission. GRACE, again, stands for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. And so it is uh, a two-satellite mission. There's two 
uh, the mission is composed of these two satellites. Uh, they're in tandem orbit. I think I have a new slide here that shows how big they are. So they're not that big, right? Uh, we just have them uh, sort of supersized here in this, in this picture. Uh, in terms of their orbit, they're up about 450 kilometers, and they're separated by about 220 kilometers, okay? And these two satellites orbit around the Earth. They chase each other around, okay? And really what they're doing is looking at each other. The primary measurement that's made is the distance between the two, the distance between the two satellites, okay? And so the way it works is that uh, the position of each of these satellites is perturbed by Earth's gravity field, okay, including those changes over time. Okay, so if uh, you know, these are the Rocky Mountains here, and the satellites are coming towards the mountains, then the, and they're one following the other, then the first one will be pulled down and accelerated towards the mountains, and then as it passes this mass anomaly, it will relax back to its original position in the orbit, and then the second, will come, the second one will come in and do the same thing. So that distance between the two satellites is constantly changing. I'm making it look like it's a big, big difference, but it's really at the sub-micron sub level, okay? Um, and so, you know, tenths of a micron, perhaps, in the, in the error of, uh, with which those intersatellite distances are, are measured are 10% uh, of that. So extremely accurate measurements. Um, I'll get to how we get water out of this in just a, in just a minute. Uh, so the mission was originally planned to be a five-year mission. It was launched in 2002, in March of 2002, so it's been up for over 10 years now. And it could die any time. Actually, it's running out of battery life, and it could, it could shut down, or it could hit some space dust or something, who knows. Um, and, and it could shut down, uh, but it's hanging on. We're still getting about 10 months of data per year from, uh, from the mission. So that's, that's pretty good for something that was supposed to only last uh, five years. Um, and a follow-on, actually almost a carbon copy of the mission is planned for, for 2017. Um, and part of that's because of the fine work uh, um, that the satellite's been able to do, uh, the information that it's been able to provide us on uh, how the ice sheets are, sh are shrinking, how ocean mass changes, um, and some of the things I'll talk about with respect to water storage on land. Um, okay, so this figure shows us how our knowledge of the gravity field and really the static part of the gravity field. So the unchanging part of the gravity field, there are really two parts to the gravity field, the static and the time variable part. The static part is really the part that doesn't change that much, at least on human time scales, and it's related to the tectonic and topographic, you know, the tectonic and topographic features of the Earth. Um, so, you know, where the continents are, where the ocean trenches are, mountain ranges, and so on. Uh, this figure, um, shows uh, a map of uh, our understanding of the, of the static uh, part of the gravity field before GRACE, okay? And so then after only about 100 days of GRACE data, you can see that the features, the gravity features are getting uh, quite sharper and even more sharp after a year of gravity data, okay? So we have, uh, and we've been doing this for over 10 years now. So we have a great understanding of what the uh, static part of the gravity field looks like. Now imagine if you made one of those maps every month, which is exactly what we do. Right? And if you look at the difference between a gravity map on a monthly basis 
that difference that you're seeing, the things that really change the gravity field, the, the dominant thing that changes the gravity field, well, it's mass redistribution, right? If the mass changes, if we, for example, fly over the uh, uh, Rocky Mountains today, and then we come back next month, and it's snowed, there's a heavier mass, okay? More mass, so more gravitational attraction, right? Different inter-satellite distance, okay? And so by making these repeated maps of the gravity field and looking at their differences over time, the main thing that we're seeing through the differences is changes in water mass. Changes in water mass in the ocean and the ice sheets and on the land. The mass changes in the atmosphere are there. They're just so tiny compared to the uh, ocean and land and ice sheets that they, they don't really, you know, we see them, but they're not significant compared to, compared to the others. So the difference between these two global gravity fields uh, gives us this time variable component. The main contributors to the time variations in the gravity field are changes in water storage in the ocean, the atmosphere, and on land. And again, we know water's heavy, right? I mean, we know it's heavy when we, not that any of us buy bottled water anymore, but if you go to Costco or something and you pick up a case of bottled water, it's quite, it's quite heavy. Uh, or, you know, you're carrying a couple of gallons of milk or something. It's, it can be quite a workout, at least for me. Um, so really what we're seeing with this time variable signal on land is dominated by changes in terrestrial water storage. When I use the term terrestrial or total water storage, I'm talking about all of the water in a region, maybe a big watershed. Uh, so I'm talking about the changes, sort of the delta S uh, so the combination of all of the snow, all of the surface water, all of the soil moisture, all of the groundwater. Okay, so when I say terrestrial or total water storage, that's what I'm talking about. And Grace sees the change, not the absolute amount. So we see a change on a monthly basis for large areas, about 150,000 square kilometers or bigger, and over longer time scales, uh, a month or longer, okay, the bigger the area, and the longer the time scale, the smaller the error. At the monthly 150,000, 200,000 uh, square kilometer scale, the errors are about 1.5 centimeters of equivalent water height. So a water storage change has to be bigger than that to be detectable. Okay. Here's an example of, uh, oh, this is from Texas. Um, and so you see that recent drought showing up there pretty well. And so, uh, this is a time series of the, of the basically water storage anomalies, a difference with respect to the average over the time period, okay? And so we see there's ups and downs. There's a little bit of a trend here. This part here is probably the drought. Uh, each dot is a monthly storage anomaly, okay? Units here are, look like millimeters per month and then years on the bottom. So when you think about it, you know, having these data about the ups and downs of water storage in this case for a river basin, uh, uh, is, is quite new information for, for hydrologists. And there's a lot, that, a lot that we can do with it because we've got this delta S now. We can close the water balance. So we can solve for unknowns like maybe evaporation, if we know all the other terms, maybe river discharge. If we, you know, if we know all the other terms, we can solve for whatever the unknowns might be. Um, I like to say that grace is like a giant scale in the sky. 
Okay, so if there's one thing that you remember about this, think that grace is, remember that grace is like a giant scale in the sky. It doesn't tell you how much you weigh, it doesn't tell you you weigh, you know, 160 pounds. It tells you that you've gained a pound of water weight, gained a couple of pounds the next month, gained a few more pounds, tend to go on a diet, lose a pound, lose a couple more pounds. So it shows you the ups and downs, okay? That's what, that's what it does. Uh, here's what some of the data look like. So you can see the coarseness of the data right away. But if you're doing global work, it's kind of cool. So it's not going to tell you, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to say what the groundwater level beneath the campus is doing with data like these. But there have been several papers, including our first paper, that looked at the whole high plains aquifer or subsections of the aquifer and, and what it's doing uh, uh, using GRACE data. Okay? And globally, of course, it's pretty gives a pretty nice picture that we never had before. Um, some of the key figures that, that come out I'd like to share with you, I think they're important on their own, and I think they're important when we think about what some of our models um, should be, some of our large-scale models should be doing, should be able to reproduce, are these figures. The one on the left is the uh, amplitude of the annual signal. In other words, it's sort of the average, if we go back here, it's the average of the peak-to-peak -peak height, okay? And this is important because amplitude is ultimately a measure of the strength of the water cycle, okay? Meaning if you have more precipitation, more input into a river basin or to an aquifer, storage is gonna go up. If you have more evaporation from a river basin or more discharge from an aquifer, storage is gonna go down, right? And so the amplitude is an integrated measure of the water balance. And the bigger the amplitude, the more, the stronger the, the, stronger the water cycle. And so uh, this becomes important then, the, the figure on the left becomes important because our global models cannot really reproduce that. Don't pay attention to the ocean stuff, not because it's not important, but because I don't, the work on the ocean haven't analyzed it. Just talking about the land, okay? So uh, we've done a lot of work to, or validate um, the GRACE data for, for you know, most of the first 10 years that we worked on the mission pre-launch to about uh, 2006, 2007, uh, has, was, was just on validation stuff, making sure this stuff all made sense. Uh, we still do that, but the focus has changed a little bit because we're starting to see some very interesting signals emerge. Um, so anyway, our global models need to reproduce this because in the end, the variability, the, the amplitude of that storage curve, or however you want to think of it, the strength of the water cycle, that's what really dictates the extremes. That's what dictates the, how well our models are getting the extremes, right? The ups and downs of precipitation and evaporation and their, and their intensity. So the one on the left is pretty important. Um, and the one on the right, I, I changed the colors around later, but this is a map of trends in freshwater availability. Okay, so these are the trends uh, of the total water storage all over the world. Uh, the blues are losing water, the reds are gaining water. And so I'll talk about this, you know, actually a little bit better figure a little bit later on. But we see the big signals here in the ice sheets and then in the glaciers like Alaska and Patagonia. And a lot of these other blue signals are groundwater, okay? So North China Plain, India, Middle East, uh, Australia, uh, Argentina, all across the south now, and a little bit here in the high plains, and then 
you know, you know that we're losing groundwater, right? And of course, you know, in this region, we use quite a bit, and in California. But I just want to point out the lightness of the blue color here relative to the deepness of the blues here, meaning we know we're losing a lot of water, so these other places are losing a lot more. So both of those figures are important on their own, and we'll talk a little bit more about them. But I think that they're also important in terms of constraining our large-scale models. Our models, if we want to use a climate model, or a large-scale hydrological model, or a land surface model, or whatever you want to call it, we want to use models to predict water availability in the future. I think these figures, in particular the one on the right, is showing us that we have to incorporate that human component, because this is real. The human fingerprint, that's what I call these blue blobs, which they'll turn to red in a different figure, but all of these groundwater depletion signals, okay, that's the human fingerprint. And so I believe that our models need to reproduce this, and I know that they, they can't right now. That's the subject of my, other, of my other talk. So I'll leave it at that. We can talk, if anyone's interested, we can talk more later. So you can take the time series out for any river basin or for any aquifer. I'll show you an aquifer figure in just a minute. Um, these are just time series for some of the major river basins around the world, okay? And so you can imagine how understanding what's happening in the Nile is pretty important or what's happening in the Tigris and Euphrates River, uh, river basins is very important for uh, transboundary water issues and water security issues uh, uh, amongst nations. So having this information, uh, I think is critical, especially for regional and large-scale water management, including international water management. Knowing what's happening with total water availability uh, is a good thing that we really never knew, that we really never knew before. Um, the trends, I think, on some of these basins are important, on others they're not. I think it's just important to have the information, and over the longer term, we will see some of these trends uh, uh, be borne out, whether they're increasing or decreasing, or whether they're just natural, natural variability. It's probably less true with groundwater, where we know places like sections of the Ogallala or in the Central Valley, you know, or in India or China, we know we're using the water, and the water table is dropping quite a bit. In the case of California, we have tremendous, in the Central Valley, tremendous subsidence. So we have other metrics, and we see the water table drop. Okay, so let's talk about, second part of the talk, what we might see versus what we are seeing with respect to water cycle change. Are we seeing these increasing fluxes of precipitation and evaporation? Are we seeing the extremes getting more extreme? Are we seeing more ups and downs? Okay. And are we seeing this redistribution of precipitation from the mid to uh, the high and low latitude? So are we seeing this mid-latitude drying? Um, so uh, just a quick look at um, a NASA-based figure of the global water cycle. Okay. And, um, so these are all taken from satellite data. Uh, so we've got the basic features of the global water cycle. Precipitation and evaporation are greater over the ocean than they are over land. Over the ocean, uh, evaporation exceeds precipitation. So there's a net vapor transport which fuels precipitation on land. Over land, precipitation is greater than evaporation, so we get a runoff term. Okay, that sort of balances, should balance the vapor transport term. Um, so in an accelerating water cycle, are we seeing any of these numbers get bigger? Okay, are we seeing this number get bigger, this number get bigger? 
Okay, are we seeing this increasing? Okay, are we seeing this get bigger? Okay, the slide I'm going to show you next looks at this part right here. Okay? And so we're looking at whether ocean precipitation is increasing, o ocean precipitation increasing, ocean evaporation increasing, and are we seeing an increase in river discharge, including includes the ice sheets, all of the all of discharge from all of the continents. Okay, so we did a mass balance on the ocean. We used sea level data to look at how uh, and grace data to look at not only how sea level is increasing, but what the water mass component of that was. Okay, so if you write a mass balance on the ocean, it's just like writing a mass balance on the river basin, on a river basin. DSDT equals P minus E plus Q, plus the input of the river discharge. So we used remotely sensed from NASA precipitation, evaporation, uh, ocean storage change, and solve for discharge. Okay, so that's what I'll show you next. Uh, so this just sort of explains the same thing with the box diagram. Uh, what's going to happen if these fluxes get bigger, the ocean fluxes will get more vapor. So this is sort of our conceptual model for what's happening. Is the vapor transport getting bigger? Are the fluxes on land getting bigger? Is the river discharge back into the ocean getting bigger under a changing water cycle? So again, we focused on this, this part. So what do we see? We look from 1994 to 2006. And uh, we generated these figures, which I'll explain now. Uh, we did see an increase in oceanic precipitation. That's shown by this dashed line here. These all have the annual cycle taken out of it, so it's mostly interannual variability. But the dashed red line shows an overall increase in precipitation over the ocean of 240 cubic kilometers per year squared. So it's an acceleration unit because it's a change on a flux. Okay. The blue lines are piecewise, uh, piecewise trend. So a much bigger trend in evaporation of six, 768 cubic kilometers per year squared. Okay? And that's this dashed red line. So this change is much bigger than this change, which we recently confirmed the other day with uh, looking at some vapor transport data, that the vapor transport is increasing. And likely that leads to increases in precipitation on land. But what we did solve for was the increasing discharge into the oceans, okay? of about 540 cubic kilometers per year squared, which is actually for an acceleration 10 times bigger than the acceleration of the ice sheets. Okay, so it's a significant, it's a significant number. Um, let me explain its significance a little bit more. Here's what the actual monthly time series looks like if you do this mass balance and solve for the discharge. This is what it looks like. So on its own, this is very cool because it is a global river, globally integrated uh, river discharge uh, time series, which this is the only one that exists that's observation-based. Um, you see that there's a slight upward trend. This is what the annual hydrograph looks like. So there's some big El Nino peaks. Um, so there's considerable interannual variability for sure. But there's an overall increase of about 1.5% per year, which is a lot. Because if you multiply that by 10, you get a bigger number. Um, and it's a number that we should be concerned about. Okay, uh, because if it continues, then it's really sort of a smoking gun for water cycle uh, acceleration and has a lot of implications for more flooding, uh, more inundation. Um, so issues that we're all aware of, changing flood risk and uh, the need for new inundation maps and so on, uh, so on and so forth. So lots of implications for that. I want to uh, switch now to 
um, the variability question. Are we seeing these extremes getting bigger? Are we seeing more extreme extremes? And let me walk you through how we kind of backed into this. If we think about an ocean uh, mass balance again, okay, we have our inputs and we have our outputs. Our inputs are precipitation and, and river discharge into the ocean and uh, evaporation is an outflow. Okay? Uh, and so if we plot the storage change over time, it looks like this, right? Just up and down as the inputs increase. So this is just ocean storage or how the mass of the ocean would change over time. And this is actual GRACE data. Uh, so uh, that storage curve is going to go up when the inputs go up, right? So if the inputs increase, then the storage goes up. Um, and if the outputs increase, then the storage goes down, okay? Well, then what about as we just saw, what's going to happen if the P and the E, right, the precipitation, the evaporation, the discharge are getting bigger, right? Those guys all get bigger, then we're probably going to get more ups and downs, okay? And the ups and downs, you know, directly translate into uh, or a result of more precipitation, more evaporation, okay? So what we finally recognized at some point, and I said this earlier, is that the amplitude of these storage curves, whether we're looking at a river basin or the ocean or all of the land, the amplitude of the storage curve is a measure of the water cycle strength, okay? And so the amplitude is going to increase if we have more inflows and more outflows. And then what finally hit us is that the change in the amplitude is a measure of the change in the strength of the water cycle or as a metric of water cycle acceleration. So we really don't have any metrics of water cycle acceleration. And so being able to kind of back this out of this storage-based argument, I think, uh, we'll, we haven't written it up yet, but I think ultimately it will be an important contribution. And we'll let the peer review process decide that. Um, so this is what motivated this um, exercise. This is a plot of all of the water uh, in the world, or mass changes in, in, of all the water in the ocean, all the water on land, all the water in the ice sheets. Again, the atmosphere isn't on here because the mass of water in the atmosphere is really, really tiny and the mass changes are even smaller. Okay, so what we see, it's all in terms of equivalent mean sea level. So how much sea level will go up or down. And so the blue, uh, I always forget which line is which. I should remember that the blue is ocean. Anyway, uh, so we have that ocean time series that we just looked at going up and down as precipitation and evaporation and discharge are, are changing over the seasons, right? Okay, but then what maybe you didn't know is that that's out of phase with what's happening on land. And so all that's telling us is that as one goes down, the other goes up, okay? As that land storage goes down because there's more evaporation, that evaporation is being transported as vapor transport over land where it rains. So it's just moving. It's just the movement of water back and forth from the ocean to the land through the water cycle. Okay? That's the water cycle. And so how the amplitude changes is telling us how the strength of the water cycle is changing. And it's really a direct measure of how much water is moving back and forth from the ocean to the land and from the land back to the ocean. That's what, that, that's what that is. And so we get the idea for the increasing amplitude because the first half of the time series, we were fitting these cone functions and it looked like 
you know, things were really increasing. And then we got here, and it looked like the amplitude was decreasing a little bit. Then we just decided we'd just go ahead and just plot what the amplitude. We were fitting different various periodic functions. And finally we said, oh, let's just, duh, let's just plot the amplitude. This is what the amplitude looks like, okay? So again, what we're talking about here, each point on either one of these lines, and they're basically the same because, remember, we're just moving water from the ocean to the land, so it's the same, same water going back and forth. So each point here is sort of a measure of the strength of the water cycle. So it's saying that, okay, you know, we're getting this much stronger, this much stronger, or in other words, between 2007 and 2003, this much, 0.8 cubic times 10 to the fourth, cubic kilometers per year is moving back and forth between the land and the ocean. So there's that much more precipitation, that much more evaporation. Okay, does that, that make sense? And then decreasing over this time period. If you look at a trend, then if we put a trend through this, that's the acceleration. Okay, so again, it's a metric of water cycle acceleration. So we think that's pretty important and something that uh, we need to be keeping an eye on. But it's pretty important because, um, at least in this short time period, we're seeing an overall increase in variability. And compared to much colder climates, say, you know, whatever, 1,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, uh, certainly the water cycle is much more active. So we need to be worrying about where it's going to be going in the future. Um, so the reason that this is important is because it really represents, as the water cycle gets stronger, not only are we getting more precipitation and evaporation, but we're getting a lot more energy, right? So the, the water cycle and energy are intimately linked. If we're gonna evaporate more and move more water up into the atmosphere, transport it to the land, and then drop it on the land, okay, we're gonna move a lot more energy from the ocean to the land, and then we're gonna drop a lot more energy, right? We're gonna have a lot more energetic storms over land. This is the variability part. This is the increasing uh, flooding, the increasing precipitation, okay? The increasing intensity of precipitation part. Okay, which I think is borne out by these increasing amplitudes, especially as they increase over time. And I'll get back, I mentioned I had a heuristic argument for the future, which I'll get, which I'll get back to. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that as, as, you know, in this part of the country, you all well know that this increasing variability is a huge challenge. And when I give this talk to water managers, they care less about the trend stuff and much more about the variability stuff because Water management, the whole goal of water management is to damp out that variability so that it can provide um, a reliable flow of water to its customers, right? And so if you think of a reservoir system or a sort of black box water management system, if you have a very noisy inflow signal, it's much harder to damp out that incoming variability to have lower relative variability. So the, the more noise coming in, the harder it is to for the system to, to damp it out. So this is a huge challenge for water managers. And there is considerable socioeconomic, political security, and other risks. Uh, because the one thing that society wants and economic growth requires is a sustainable, secure, reliable water source. So variability is something that we're gonna have to pay a lot of attention to and in the future, and we're starting to be able to quantify it in new ways that are a little bit different. It's more challenging sometimes to put together a precipitation data set and to estimate evaporation and to understand the relative variability. Sometimes discharge isn't even measured. So it's nice to have this sort of readout from the scale 
so to speak, of you know one metric of what's happening with the water resources, water resources in an integrated way in a large river basin or an aquifer. Okay, uh, so what about this uh, redistribution part? Are we seeing this redistribution of precipitation from the mid-latitudes to the high and low latitudes as suggested by the IPCC models? And these are a couple of figures, well-known figures. Uh, for winter and summer precipitation from a multi-model uh, ensemble that show by the end of the century uh, less precipitation shown in red in the mid-latitudes and more um, and high and, and lower latitudes. So it's a pretty well-known figure. Well, what are we seeing from, from Grace? It's only 10 years uh, so far. Are we seeing anything? Well, I, I think we are. Uh, in this particular figure, this is just after, after eight years, but the, the, when you look at the global trend maps, they look pretty much the same. Most of those trends now over a 10-year period have, have, have stabilized. And what, what hasn't stabilized is interannual variability. Uh, so that, that will change. So the, some of the key trends here are stable. So what I see when I look at this map is a lot of blue uh, at high latitudes, a lot of blue at low latitudes, a lot of red and yellow in the mid-latitudes. So now I've changed the scale on you. So the blue is getting wetter and the red is getting drier, okay? So, you know, I look at this stuff a lot and I think I see that these mid-latitudes are, I've convinced myself um, that, the, that there's a lot of yellow and red in the mid-continent in the mid-latitudes and there's a lot of blue at high and low latitudes. And so I ask the question, are we, is this stuff already starting to show up in the, in the GRACE data? Uh, so time will, time will tell, but it's nice to know anyway that these storage variations are being recorded and everywhere we check and have data where we can check the, the, the satellite performs quite, quite well. Um, what's a little bit more disturbing is when we go in and start to do the attribution of what's happening at, at all these different red spots. And um, so you already know the big signals. So I kind of mentioned this in my earlier figure. The big signals are Greenland and Antarctica. And then after that, the glaciers in Alaska and Patagonia. But almost the rest of those red blobs, almost all of them, are related to groundwater depletion. Okay, so this is very much uh, a human water management thing that's shown up quite, quite well. Uh, so uh, North China Plain and Tibetan Plateau, we've written papers on India. Uh, we have a paper in review on the Middle East. Um, we think that this is actually related to mining in northwestern Australia. Perhaps some of the southern Africa stuff may be related to mining as well. Uh, over here in Argentina in the Guarani Aquifer, big uh, depletion going on. And that southwestern signal, so here's the high plains. And again, uh, those signals are not as strong. I mean, we know that there's a fair amount of, of groundwater being depleted across the whole aquifer, right? But look at those signals compared to some of the other ones around the world. So maybe we should pat ourselves on the back for being great water managers. Um, but you know, these are, these are scary, okay? This to me is frightening stuff because it's really the first time we've been able to put it together on a map like this and see, oh, okay, this is really the human signature on the, on the water landscape. And we have a pretty dominant signature. There's increases in storage that are probably related to change in climate. They're also related to um, uh, increasing water storage. Like we did a paper on the Three Gorges Reservoir and you could see that water building up in the, in the reservoir. So there's some of those positive signals, uh, positive signals as well. Um, 
Okay, I just want to talk a little bit about how we drill down into these um, red blobs and try to estimate how much groundwater losses, uh, how great the groundwater losses are. Well, to do that, Grace really gives us this change in all of this water, right? So Grace gives us the change in all of the snow, surface water, soil moisture, and groundwater. So if we want to rearrange this equation and solve for groundwater, here's Grace. We need data sets, okay? So in other words, we need to remove this signal of the snow and the surface water and the soil moisture. We have to remove all the stuff over the water table from the Grace signal to isolate the groundwater signal. So where do we get that data from? Observations, okay? Um, uh, remote sensing? And when we don't have any of those computer models, okay. Uh, this is an example in California. So um, Central Valley uh, is the second most productive uh, agricultural region uh, uh, relative to this relative to this region. Central Valley is more about produce. I think the you know High Plains is more about more about grain. Um, but groundwater depletion has been going on there forever. This is that famous. Uh, subsidence picture of the USGS scientist standing next to a well casing when, you know, the well was put in, the land surface was up here, and now it's subsided down to here. Uh, so, you know, we see the wells going dry and the ground continuing to subside. So it, it's, it's a big deal. So just an example of how we apply this approach. We take the GRACE data, we get snow water equivalent data from the weather service. It's based on snow pillow data, so observations of snow assimilated into a, a regional data assimilating model. So snow pillow and the gamma survey. So observations, uh, snow course data. So only observations combined with a model to get an estimate of snow water equivalent. It's the best we can do in California right now. So this is sort of state of the art. Surface water storage, what are all the reservoirs doing? Just DWR, Department of Water Resources. Height level data, we figure out the volume changes. Soil moisture, we don't measure. We have to take it from a computer model. So we take it from a NASA large, regional, uh, large-scale uh, uh, land surface hydrology model. So basically, we have this from GRACE. We subtract this, this, and this, and uh, we get this. So this is our groundwater. This is what's happening with groundwater from uh, in the Central Valley from 2003, roughly, through 2010. Uh, so we see the overall decrease shown by the blue line. Maybe the piecewise trends in this case are a little bit more instructive in that you can see that nothing was happening here, right? Things just sort of going along. And then we had a drought kick in, right? And when that drought kicked in, uh, you know, water is heavily managed in California. We move it all over the place. Farmers in the southern part of the valley had their surface water allocations, which they used for irrigation, cut by 90%. Okay? So they just went straight to the groundwater, which is a natural response. Right? So you can see that heavy pumping of the groundwater. Once they started pumping the groundwater, the water table started dropping. And, and so we can see it quite well. It was about 20 cubic kilometers of groundwater, really over just a short period of time. And that's, that's a lot. I mean, for, for reference, it's about two-thirds of the volume of of Lake Mead over, over a very short, very short time period. So the point is, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we can be using in water management, okay? Not that it's good or bad, we need to grow food, but you know, our resources in some places are limited. Parts of the Ogallala, right? They're, 
limited. Parts of the high plains, uh, parts of the Central Valley are limited. Okay. So if this can help us um, uh, supplement what we have on the ground in terms of well data, then I think it's uh, important, to, important to think about it. Uh, we've written papers on a lot of these um, red <coughs> blobs in our trend map. This was one on India. The situation in India is much more severe. This is a paper that was published in 2009. And the dashed blue line is the overall, shows the overall trend of groundwater depletion in the northwestern part of India. Um, and it's well known that there's depletion going on there. And uh, uh, we're looking at about 110, 109 cubic kilometers of groundwater depletion in about a six-year period. So it's probably the most uh, uh, extreme case of groundwater depletion uh, on, the, on the continents. And then the Middle East is one that's in review right now. And it's same, same deal, same process, right? We start with GRACE. We compile all the other data sets of snow, surface water, soil, moisture, subtract them from the GRACE signal, which is here, and come up with a, a, uh, a groundwater time series. Um, in this case, it's probably about, uh, you know, we've been revising this number. But there's a total loss of, say, roughly 150 cubic kilometers in this time period from 2003 to 2010, about two-thirds of that is groundwater. Okay, so it's another uh, very uh, uh, extreme example of groundwater depletion on the continents. And one, of course, in a region like <coughs> India, Pakistan, that is transboundary and prone to conflict. Okay, so we always try to be quite careful when we put these results out. Um, it's not just India, okay? It's not just India, Pakistan, or the Middle East. It's happening all over the world. Here's a few more examples of uh, uh, North China Plain, uh, Australia, uh, the Guarani Aquifer. I tried to get the Bridget Scanlon's High Plains uh, figure in here, but didn't get it in time. So it's happening all over the world, and it, it's something that you know we did need to think about. Uh, and plan for in the future because in a lot of these places, um, if we know how much water is there, um, that probably means that there's not that much, right? So in the case of the Central Valley, you know, we could be running out in uh, a number of decades. I heard a talk from um, from uh, Dave Heinemann, um, and who was talking about some regions of the high plains running out in a matter of, uh, matter of decades. Of course, it's quite variable spatially. So um, anyway, this is one part of the sustainability picture, right? If we can understand the depletion rates, that's very important. We see that they're severe. We see that there could be conflict. Another part, of course, is knowing how much water we have. It's something that we don't really actually know that well in, in many places. Um, so the implications, I think, are pretty staggering. Um, so many people live in these dry areas. I guess one of the points I, I didn't make is that we were talking about those mid-latitude regions that are getting a little bit drier. That's where all those aquifers are that I showed you. So we're sort of accelerating the drying. Because it's already dry there, we have to use groundwater. And by using up the groundwater, we're drying it out even faster than it might be, might be drying by climate change. Right? And also, the flip side of that is, since they're getting drier, there won't be much more, there won't be more precipitation. There'll be even less recharge. Population is growing in those regions. So I think you get the picture. 
What's going to happen in the future? Completely heuristic. I want to wrap it up in just a few, in just a few slides. Okay, so here's a figure, hand-drawn. Just drew it on my little Mac here with my finger. It looks kind of hokey, I know, but it's temperature. And people have given me their own versions of this slide, and I've rejected every one and stick with my own version. Okay? So it's temperature versus time on glacial, interglacial time periods. Cold glaciers, not cold like now. Okay, so maybe 20,000-year time scale. When all the water is frozen, there's not much of a hydrologic cycle, right? It's frozen. It's not moving, okay? So if we plotted a storage curve of water uh, on land, it'll be frozen. It wouldn't go up and down like the ones that I showed you. It would be flat. That's supposed to be a flat, low amplitude storage curve for, say, all of the continents, okay? Now, as we start to heat up, right, the world, and we melt some of that water, it is now free to circulate, okay? It's all frozen, can't move. Unfrozen, it can move. We can get more up and more down, right? And so we kind of fast forward to where we are right now. We actually have a water cycle, okay? Water's moving back and forth, and so if this is our land storage curve, we're getting water moving back from the ocean to the land, from the land back to the ocean, and so it goes up and down, okay? Now, uh, so by extension then, I would argue that we've had an increasingly energetic water cycle on glacial, interglacial timescales. Most of us don't think that way, okay? Well, then why should we worry? Because we're just gonna go like this, right? And uh, things are gonna get cold and all the water's gonna freeze up again. And so why should we worry about the increasing drought and extremes? They're not gonna happen because the water's gonna freeze, right? Well, a lot of people are saying, no, that's not gonna happen. That's not going to happen because the greenhouse forcing is greater than the orbital forcing that would cause us to cool off again. So the greenhouse forcing is going to increase the temperature. And then, by extension, what's going to happen to the amplitude of our curve? Okay. So you just think about that. What that means is more up, more down, right? The greater amplitude means a stronger water cycle. More precipitation, more evaporation, more flooding, more drought. How much more? I don't think we know, and I don't think our, our models can capture. So in a sense, what I'm trying to say is here's, our, here's our, what's happening with our amplitude just in this short time frame right now, okay? And maybe at the end of the last glacial period, uh, that was a zero amplitude, okay? Here's where we are right now, and you know maybe here's where we go. Here's where we're going in the future, um, and so we have to think about what that means for flooding and drought and the energetics, because that's a lot of energy, right? Remember, the energy and the water cycle are intimately tied. If we're going to move that much water, lift that much water, drop it, we're talking about much greater exchanges, a much more stormy future. Doom and gloom. Skip over it. What should we be doing about it? I just want to wrap up, really a message to students, maybe to some of the faculty. Uh, you're already doing, I think, what you should be doing. Students, you guys are like completely devoted to the environment. I think it'd be great for those of you that are interested in policy. I know you have the big uh, water for food thing going on here. Um, and so you guys are gonna have to get, you know, uh, go out of your comfort zone if you're a hydrologist. You're gonna have to take some economics and some ag courses and, you know, and vice versa. So become broadly educated. Really have to hone your oral and written communication skills. It is critical, okay? We are doing work that is too important to, 
you can't, you're not going to impress your congressman when you meet him or congresswoman in the elevator and you start talking about some incredibly detailed project you're working on. You have to have a one, you know, one sentence uh, uh, soundbite. So you guys, uh, please work on those. Faculty and research scientists. I was editor of GRL for a number of years. GRL is, uh, publishes Geophysical Research Letters. It's one of the flagship journals of uh, AGU, American Geophysical Union, and most hydrologists don't even publish there, okay? Which is very sad, and it says to me, so I was editor for a long time, and saw very few, hydro very few pure hydrology papers. And so what that says to me is that we don't think our work is important. We don't think that our work warrants rapid communication. GRL and the other short format journals like, like PNAS, and of course Nature and Science, and all of the bazillion nature journals that are out there now, those things get a huge amount of attention, okay? And so my guess is that a lot of you are doing work that has quite high impact. I think in hydrology, we need to think about moving beyond the journals like Journal of Hydrology and Water Resources Research. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that a lot of you are working on some very important issues that would be uh, 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 great reading and important reading for a much wider readership. So please consider submitting to those uh, uh, letters, letters journals. And also, faculty and research scientists, please consider communicating your results directly to your Congress members, to your elected officials, to your environmental decision makers. Because, you know, they're not about to read the journals, okay? So, you have to tell them, this is what we found. We found this new, we found this new method, okay? So it's really, I think the ball is in our court to do that, uh, do that uh, communication. And everyone, I think we have uh, more and more of a responsibility to help educate the general public um, and because they need to know. You know, I was stunned, I was telling some of you folks today, I was stunned by, I showed this slide at a meeting to water managers and somebody said to me, well, what's happening in Greenland and Antarctica? I said, they're melting. And um, this, person, this person didn't know. And then later in the week, actually, I uh, did a, uh, it was a radio uh, interview. And um, same thing happened. So the interviewer did not know. And she said, is that real? Are you really seeing that? And you know, very things that a lot of us just take for granted the general public doesn't necessarily know about it. So I think we have, we have a role there, and I know that you guys are doing a great job uh, helping us uh, elevate our issues to the level of everyday understanding. I think that that's key, and I know that you're doing it, because look at what I saw when I got off the airplane. That's what I saw. Uh, so anyway, that's it. This is my group. We're actually here at, uh, it, uh, not here, we're uh, at the groundwater replenishment system, the recycling facility that's in Orange County that we actually do the toilet to tap uh, sewage recycling and inject it right back into the aquifer and drink it and with a smile. <laughs> Thank you very much.